welcome everybody and those of you on the uh, streaming it through the Zoom platform as well as the guys here. We're in chapter 21 in our study of uh, the patriarchs. And this is a, a critically important chapter in terms of the in terms of the covenant, uh, as you know, the Abrahamic covenant, which by now I hope all of you really have that nailed down, that promise of land, seed, and blessing to Abraham. It's repeated over and over and over and over again. Here God is going to fulfill his covenant promise that he made to Abraham 25 years ago. And it's just one of the astonishing aspects of the birth of Isaac who is the covenant son, that he and Sarah waited 25 years for God to fulfill his promise, which indicates, again, um, one of the main themes of the patriarchs, which is the incredible faith, uh, faithfulness of Abraham. He is faithful to God. He trusts God. He makes mistakes. He stumbles. And we'll talk here in a moment, minute about one of the consequences of that with Ishmael and so on. But let's look at the text. We're in verse 1. <clears throat> I want you to note the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Lord there is Yahweh. Whenever you see Lord with uppercase letters, that's Yahweh visited. That's, a, that's an important word in the Old Testament uh, because whenever it's used uh, in almost every case, it is God directly intervening to accomplish something. It isn't just God shows up and has a cup of coffee with Sarah. This is God is intervening to accomplish something that is going to have enormous, enormous impact. And, of course, this is the key. Uh, maybe I should put it this way. This is one of the keys to God's redemptive plan. Because the Abrahamic covenant, among many other things, is wrapped around God's redemptive plan. As he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now, what I, would, what I would just ask you to look at and think about with me is those, those words, as he had said, as he had promised, as God had spoken. There are three key phrases in the first two verses of Genesis 21. As he had said, as he had promised, as God had spoken to him, to him there is Abraham. So what you see is the reliability of God's word. When God says he will do something, bank on it, he will do it. Now what is Astonishing about this, of course, is Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for God to fulfill what he had promised. But nonetheless, the point is God keeps his word. And I think if we apply that today in our lives, there are so many ways in which we can think about this. But certainly at your, in your life and my life, the one thing that covers all of us is God has made a lot of promises to us. I think one of the most comforting promises is Jesus in John chapter 14. I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back for you. I mean, right there is just one of the formidable promises of Scripture that gives us hope. And it's, it's just it's an important, an important item whenever you study things like this, and especially here. God is keeping his word. 
And you know from the different things we've studied so far, there are times when Abram and Sarah doubted that. Sarah tried to take it into her own hands and give him uh, give uh, uh, Abram his her servant uh, Hagar to okay let's help God out here you you take her and Ishmael and massive problems as a result of that but still they trusted God and so here now verse verse three and Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah had bore him Isaac and Isaac excuse me and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. So just intersect these two things. We noted three times that God said, as he had said, as he had promised, as he had, God's word had spoken. Now Abraham responds in obedience. He calls him Isaac, and he circumcises him. Now, if this were a class, I would ask you a review question, which would count 10 points. But this isn't a class and doesn't count, but I'm still going to ask it. Why circumcise? Sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Do you know why eight days? Um, well, why? As a doctor, you tell me. <laughs> it just physiologically, at, at eight days after birth, the platelet count rises to the highest level. And so there's minimal bleeding after a circumcision. Wow. On the eighth day. That is, that's a doctor speaking. Now, that's an important piece of information. That'll be a bonus question the next <laughs> week. Uh, that's, that's really neat. I had heard that before, actually, uh, but I think it, it's important. If there are any other reasons medically, it makes this God knows what he's doing when he gives a command like that. On Providential. Day. Exactly. So you see this intersection of God promising. Fulfilling the promise and Abraham obeying. You have those two things that just intersect throughout the life of Abraham. Here you see it again. And then you have this, I just can, I just can hardly imagine this, but it's this, the fact of Scripture. Verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old. And we know that. We talked about it. We charted the years we went through this. And you know, Abraham 75, and now Abraham 90. Now he's 100 years old. When, when an Isaac is born. That's, that is, again, evidence of the supernatural intervention of God. And, and Sarah is 90. It is not normal. This is not the norm. But God rarely does things according to the norm. And so it is just reminding us of this. In verse, uh, verse 6, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. <clears throat> and the importance of verse um, six is a contrast to chapter 18, verse 12, where there was in Sarah's response almost a doubtful laughter. This is, this is joy now. This is the laughter of joy. Joy comes when God fulfills his promises. And so this is what's happening with Sarah. This isn't the cynical, doubtful laughter of chapter 18, verse 12. This is a laughter of joy. God has kept his promises. God has given me a son. And so she rejoices. It's another way of putting it. This is a laughter of praise, a laughter of adoration to God. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah must have nursed children? Yet I have borne him as a son in his old age. And so the inference from that is that she also will nurse her son, which again, for a you know, 
A woman in her 90s is certainly extraordinary. But this is the, all the miraculous, the miraculous hand of God is all over this. It is a promise God made 25 years earlier, and now God is fulfilling the promise. And Abraham responds in obedience, sacrifice, I mean, excuse me, to circumcise his son. And Sarah responds with the worshipful joy. God has kept his word. Okay? Now, that's, that's pretty straightforward, but I wanted to emphasize particularly, as I did in this first couple of verses, that, that response of, of, of the importance of God keeping his word. And for you and me, I think today in 2021, that is really important. That's what keeps us going. That's the basis and even the content of our hope. When God promises something, bank on it, he's going to fulfill it. <clears throat> Now, verse eight through the end of the uh, through the end of the paragraph, which goes through twenty one, we <clears throat> we come back to uh, I was almost going to say the problem of Ishmael. I wouldn't say problem, but the issue of Ishmael. Something has to happen here, and you're going to see what it is. And I want to relate this then to how Islam looks at this because I think it's really important to do that. Verse eight. Now the child grew, and the child, of course, would, would be Isaac, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast day on that day that Isaac was weaned. Now, um, weaning in the ancient Near Eastern world was much later than it is today. I mean, typically a gal who is nursing her son or, or daughter as a baby, you're, you're not talking about years, you're talking about months. In the ancient Near Eastern world, it was often two years or three years until the child is completely weaned. So when, when the text tells us that, it, and it doesn't give us at this point, it will soon, but it doesn't quite give us an exact age of Isaac. Don't think of him just a few months. It's probably accurate to think of him in terms of several years old. Now, that is, that's for us, that's really, really hard. And women who nurse, it's really hard to imagine that. But that is weaning took much longer as a, as a practice. It was much longer in the ancient world. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, I'm in verse 9, whom she had born to Abraham laughing. Now, this is, this is not, the, the term there is not the laughing of joy, we saw in verse 6, this is the laughing of mockery. This is the cynical, mocking, and scoffing kind of laughter. And I, I don't it think it takes much of your imagination to understand the difference. <laughs> so this isn't the same thing. This isn't the laughter of joy in God fulfilling his promises, verse 6. This is the laughter of mocking, cynical scoffing. <clears throat> and so Sarah sees her servant Hagar, who had given birth to Ishmael, doing that, that cynical mocking. Verse 10, so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. Now you have to go back earlier because you might remember that Hagar had been denominated as the wife of Abraham. Sarah has now demoted her again. 
And she is now in the category, once again, of a slave. Now, just remind you, when Abraham and Sarah had gone down to Egypt because of the famine and so on, quite a few chapters earlier, and they came back, she, Hagar, in, in ways that it, the text does not explain, had become a servant of Sarah. And so she now, Sarah now, is demoting Hagar again to that status of a slave. And so that's how she, she now denominates her in that way. Cast out the slave woman with her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And so this conflict now is set up. And Sarah is adamant. My son is the covenant son. Her son is not. Get rid of her. Get rid of him. This is what Sarah is. She's actually commanding this. This isn't a suggestion. This is the imperative mood. She's commanding us. Now look at, uh, look at what, what Abram does in verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. And the, the phrase his son means Ishmael. <laughs> because Abraham, regardless of everything that Sarah, uh, uh, Sarah is saying about Hagar and Ishmael, from Abraham's perspective, it's still, he is my son. He came from my loins. He is my boy. Even though he's not the covenant son, Isaac is. He's still my boy. And so that, here you have conflict. So this is why, verse 12, God must intervene here. And God does intervene. And so in all of your text and translation, I'm sure, the word but is the first word of the sentence. But God, so God is now intervening. Be not displeased because of the boy, and because of your slave woman, whatever Sarah says, do it. Do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, before I get to verse 6, let me stop. God is saying, let me paraphrase it. It is wise for you to do what your wife is asking you to do. That's a wise thing. Now, the reality is, and you see this, especially in Jacob's family. When you, if you, we're going to get to that in a couple months, probably. But if you remember Jacob's family, Jacob has 12 sons, but to four different women. And the, the, interge- the interpersonal relationships and rivalry among those four women, plus among those children, is monumental. It's one of the most dysfunctional families in the Bible. And God, God knew that. And so God is just saying, in effect, Abraham, it is wise for you to do what Sarah is asking you to do. Is that where her happy wife, happy life got started? <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> and then look at, look at verse 13, because this is an important part of, of the text, too. This is God now speaking. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. And we will read about this a little bit later. Ishmael is going to have 12 sons. And those 12 sons will be the various tribal groups and really more, more clans that are going to populate this. And that is, it is an extremely important fact of Scripture. And the fact of Scripture is that God does bless Abraham's son, Ishmael. But he's going to be a very different son. And we'll see a little more about that later on. And that sets up 
what even in 2022 is really important, that conflict between the two of Abraham's children, the children of Isaac and the children of Ishmael, the Jews and the Arabs. <laughs> Here's the origin of that. Right here is the origin of that. And that conflict is going to just resonate throughout history uh, in so many different ways. And I want to say a little more about that in just a minute. In verse 14, then, so Abram rose early in the morning, took bread, a skin of water, gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. I mean, that sounds kind of mean. <laughs> it sounds kind of harsh. But God had said, do what your wife is, is, is telling you to do. But I'm going to bless you something. Now, I want to read verse 15 through 21, and then I want to go back and talk a little bit about how Islam looks at this, because this is a very, very important part of the history of things as Islam looks at. When the water in the skin was gone, in verse 15, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, where she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she said opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. So, I mean, this is desperation. She's out of water, presumably out of food, and so what she knows is going to happen is she's going to die, and her son will die before she does. So she puts her son under, and she walks away. She says, I'm not going to watch him die, but she can still see him. I mean, that's, a, that's an absolutely horrific a horrific thing to imagine a mother preparing to watch her child die. Is God going to let this happen? Verse 17. God heard the voice of the boy, we are assuming, crying, you know, because of not having food, not being able to drink water. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. What, a what God had said to Abraham in verse 13, God now says to Hagar in verse 18, I'm going to make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him in the land of Egypt. Now, if you want to do things like this, you don't have to. But if you're following the map on page 19, the wilderness of Paran, I'm going to show it right here for those of you. Wilderness of Paran is the very southern part or the very bottom part of the map. It's, it's, it's that wilderness area that leads into Egypt. So it's telling us geographically where Ishmael grew up. And it's telling us also that he is a, a, a man who will become, uh, as he grows up, proficient with the bow. He's a hunter, etc. Now, what is clear here is that God intervenes and preserves the life of Hagar, and more importantly, in terms of what's going to happen, Ishmael. 
And so what I would what I would like to do is um, how how does Islam look at this? How, what does the Quran say about this? Meaning this event, which I just uh, read from. Now, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize what one of the surah, surah is Arabic for chapter, one of the chapters in the Quran says about this. Hagar and Ishmael are in the desert there on the way to Egypt in that desert area, running out of food, running out of water. She falls to the ground. And this is what Islam says. Abraham, he lives in Beersheba. Abraham then comes down to near the wilderness of Paran and found, digs this, finds this miracle spring that God had supernaturally provided. Now, for Islam, what they're saying is Ishmael and Hagar went all the way down to the Arabian Peninsula, which in this map is south, way south here, way off this map. And Islam says, the Quran says that after Abraham found this miracle, uh, spring, this supernatural provision by God of water, and remember, he is the one who's doing it, not an angel, as the text said. He then built... He, Abraham, then built a large cube, you know what a cube is, over this site. The spring of water continued to flow, and as people traveled through this region, they continued to drink of this supernatural spring. This is the foundation of the city of Mecca. And this is the foundation of the Kaaba stone. Because that cube that Abraham built over the site where God provided that miraculous spring, is becomes the center of Islam, the Kaaba stone. Kaaba is spelled K-A-A-B-A. And so this is, an, this is an extraordinary event in the history of Islam. And what I have, I, I, you know, I have it here. This is a PowerPoint slide that I have on this. I think you all can see it. Can you see that black cube-shaped thing? That's the center of Islam in 2022. It's in Mecca, and the largest mosque in the world is built around this thing. And if you, you can't see it very well, but you can at least see, it looks like the circles, they're people. <laughs> they, they, they go around this cobblestone seven times in a prayerful ritual and so on during the Hajj. So this is the inter... Uh, the version of what happened in the passage we just finished reading in Genesis 21 is tweaked by the Quran to have Ishmael rescuing, uh, excuse me, Abraham rescuing Ishmael and Hagar. And then in that miraculous spring that God provides, he builds the Kaaba over it, which is the foundation of Mecca, which is the center of Islam. Who built it? Abraham did. Abraham did. It. This according is what, to, according to them, according to the Quran. And that's why. Um, I'm sure you, you, you know this, but the way in which people want to talk about it is uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all worship the same God. They all could treat Abraham as one of the patriarchs. And that's true. They all do. And so Abraham is just as important to Islam as he is to Judaism, but for a different reason. <laughs> and we just, we just looked at the reason. Because from Islam's perspective, 
Ishmael is the covenant son, not Isaac. And all that I just quickly tried to summarize is how they interpret this entire very important story that we've just read about, but give it that important, uh, very important centrality of how the cobblestone was built and why the cobblestone was built and why it's the center of Islam. It is today. So just for clarification, for Christians, an angel did the will. That's correct. For the other group, Abraham, Abraham did. That's right. okay. You got it. Exactly right. Because there's, and you see it from which there's absolutely no evidence that Abraham went down to, to, to rescue them. But Islam, uh, Abraham is really, really an important patriarch for them. He, he's one of the prophets, they, they give him that title. He's one of the prophets along with Moses, David, and, and many others. I just thought we'd uh, briefly talk about that. Do you have any other guys online there? Do you have any, have any questions? Are you with me on what we've been doing here? If you have any questions, let me know. Quick question. Yes, please. The boy being lifted up there in verse 18, that is Ishmael, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. Trying to follow along the sons here. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> Yep, that's the angel is uh, commanding Hagar to lift up her son. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I'll emphasize again the, what God had promised Abraham in verse 13, he reiterates to Hagar in verse 18. And that is true. I mean, Ishmael is the father of a great nation. And actually, as we'll talk a little bit later on, uh, he will give birth to 12 sons. And that becomes a very important uh, uh, marker for us understanding the diversity of groups that all, they're all basically Arabs, they all make a claim to the same land. And that has created the mess that's in the Middle East for several thousand years. Which brings up the next question. Why would God set this conflict? I, I think it's better, Bill, and it's a great question, but I think it's better, Bill, to use a phrase that um, theologians often try to use. Why did God permit this? Because God certainly would have had power and authority to stop all of this from happening, one to stop Abraham from going into Hagar and starting this mess and so on. And, you know, in that sense, then, Bill, I don't know if I can answer the question, because why God permits certain things. But ultimately, when we speak of God's permissive will, God's permissive will always eventually ultimately leads to some good outcome. God is going to bring something good out of this. And you think of Joseph, why, why would God permit Joseph to be sold into slavery, end up in prison in Egypt? Why would he allow that? But I know we do, but we know the answer to that. And today it's really fascinating. I don't know if any of you ever will go to Israel, if you've been to Israel, if you go to Yad Vashem, which is the great Holocaust museum there, the message of Yad Vashem is God used the Holocaust to bring about the nation of Israel. That's the message of, the, of Yad Vashem. And it's, that museum is on, a, it's on a slant like this. And you start here with all of the origins of anti-Semitism, 
how it started in history and then what Hitler did and so on. I just chart you through. It's fantastic as you open the last two things are all of the events associated with the creation of the nation state of Israel in May of 1948. And then you walk out and it opens to the hills of Judea. I mean, the message of that is very clear. God took something monstrously evil, which it was, and brought good out of it. And so, Bill, I mean, that's, to me, um, Satan, Satan is the energizing force in back of this. The Bible doesn't explicitly say it, but Satan is the energizing force in back of this because if he can pre prevent or distort the importance of Isaac as the covenant son, I can maybe prevent the Messiah from coming. Well, God's not going to let that happen. But as, as all of this occurs, you see two things. Number one, you see the nefarious, con the uh, evil consequences of not doing what God wants you to do. What did Abraham, what did God say? I'm going to give you a son. Trust me. He didn't trust God. He listened to his wife, Sarah. I'm going to give you Hagar. You have sexual intercourse with her. She'll give you the son. We'll help God out on this. And so God says, okay, you're going to do that? Here's the consequence of that. And the consequence, we are experiencing the consequences of that in 2022. And you, you, this, you, you will see this with all the patriarchs. You'll see it with Jacob. I mean, but, but what is God doing? You must see the consequences of your lack of faith and trust in me. And if you willfully, willfully choose to disobey me, I will forgive you. My grace will cover it. The relationship is restored. But there are going to be consequences. That's the way in which I made my world. And so I know, Bill, that's part of it. You see it becomes a model. If you choose, to, you, you choose not to trust God and believe he's going to keep his promises, and you try to help God along and do something, God will restore you. It's a relationship will still be there, but there will be consequences. And that's a lesson you see with David. I mean, every major figure of Scripture, you see that. The Bible is filled with character studies of individuals warts and all yeah Fred. so you intended that for evil for god that's what joseph says god has the ability to do that he does that so there there's parallel in my mind there's parallel between eve and sarah now the, the bible doesn't say Sarah was beguiled by the serpent, but she made that choice, which was uh, not trusting God, and and uh, so there's some parallels there. Well, there there are lots of parallels with. I mean, Eve is kind of the paragon, paradigm, and example of woman, just like Adam is the example of men. And it is, it is. She, uh, she was deceived and took things into her own hands, and the results of that were disastrous. All right. Um, I want to go to verse 22, but are there any final questions either about the stuff I interjected about Islam and how they look at it, how, how the Quran looks at it, as well as the importance of this? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, please go. I'm just, I'm, uh, 
I'm just asking, uh, in your opinion, was the creation of the, the nation of Islam a good thing in the long run? Because haven't they been adversaries of the Jewish nation? Um, it may be that if he had kept Ishmael, you know, there would have been a division anyway. I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I'm just curious about what your thoughts are on that. Well, it's hard. I mean, uh, Tan, it's hard to I either see what happens as a result of, of Abraham not trusting God and going into Hagar and Ishmael being born. And then, you know, that was about 2000 BC, then uh, 632 AD when Islam is born. Uh, I can't see real positive things about either one of those. I would not look at the birth and development of Islam as a world religion as a positive thing, just as I would not look at Hinduism, which is much, much older, or Buddhism or anything else. Because uh, one of the things, John, I'm going to go down by nature real quickly, but one of the things that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 is that every Every source, excuse me, every world religion, every false teaching, every heresy is sourced in Satan. And so, I mean, I don't know if I'd say that publicly in a, in a, in a, in a service in front of thousands of people, but I'll say it to you guys as a small group. I think Islam is one of the, the, the supreme examples of the deceptive distortions of Satan. Just like I would look at Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism is the same way. Taking a core of things that are true and perverting and distorting them into something totally contradictory to everything that God declares in his word, and that becomes captivating, it becomes seductive, uh, and it becomes deceptive in terms of, of uh, the origins of everything that Satan's trying to do. Satan is trying to defeat God at every single level. And the complexity and diversity of world religions is an example of that. Because then individuals become, there are 1.2 billion people that believe Islam is the only true faith. And, uh, you know, it's an incredibly complex faith. It's very divided. There's no uniform Islam. It's extremely divided. All you have to do is look at Iran versus Saudi Arabia. It's an example of that. But Shia versus Sunni. But at the same time, the core of what they believe is what we just have been reading about, how they look at Ishmael as the founder of an inheritance of, of what they believe is the origin of their faith. I mean, that's crazy, because that was in 2000 BC, and Islam, Muhammad doesn't show up until the 600s AD. But that's none of us how they look at it. I don't know if I answered your question, John, but that's my shot at it. Well, I think so, yes. Good. All right, let's look then at concluding the chapter, if we can, uh, in verse 22 and following, uh, and then we'll, we'll begin to transition to chapter 22, which is an extremely important chapter because of what God asks Abraham to do with Isaac. At that time, so the, Moses is a writer, so he wants us to identify what's just happened with Isaac being born and all the stuff with uh, the weaning and all the stuff with Ishmael and so on. So it's about the same time. Abimelech, I don't know if you remember him. Remember him? They're over in Gerar, Gershar, and he was kind of the leader of that city. And uh, Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. 
Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my descendants, with my posterity. For I have dealt kindly with you. So you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned in Abraham, I will swear. Now, what I want you to observe here is this is really remarkable. Because here's the Vimalat. Remember, that's over near the coast. If you can look at the map there. But remember, Abraham moved over there. We don't know why, but he moved over there for a while. And he lied to Abimelech, said, Sarah's my, daughter, my uh, sister and all that stuff. Remember that? Well, so what Abimelech has done is he's seen over the last two and a half years, he's seen two things. Verse 21, verse 22. God is with you in all you do. Now, that, to me, that's extraordinary. Because that means is Abimelech, there is no evidence that Abimelech at, at, at least at this point, that Abimelech is a, a worshiper of the one true and only God. But what he's observing is Abraham. And he says, there's a thing I can conclude. God is with you in all you do. And then the second thing is, because God is with you in all you do, Abraham, I want you to swear something. I want to enter into a covenant relationship with you. I want to negotiate a treaty with you. I'm, I'm kind of putting it in 21st century language. But I want to negotiate something with you. I want you to sign your name on this dotted line that you will not deal falsely with me, harshly, vengefully, with my descendants, with my posterity. Because Abraham, I've dealt kindly with you. And you know that word kindly there is the is the Hebrew word chesed. We have talked about that before in this class. That's covenant loyalty. Abraham, I have been loyal to you. And Abraham says, okay. Okay, I, I, I swear, I'll sign my name and I got in line. This is a covenant arrangement between these two leaders. Now, a test comes of that. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Okay, the covenant has been made. The promise has been made. The arrangement has been made. The agreement has been made. That's a test of it. Because some of Abimelech's men have taken a well of water, taken control of a well that Abraham had, Abraham had dug. It was his well. <laughs> Abimelech said, I, I do not know what, who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I've not heard of it until the day. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham said, seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which were set apart? These you, seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand. Let this be a witness to me that I have dug this well. And if you accept it, it means you agree that this is my well. Now, that's really a weird way to do it, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, when a binding agreement is being tested, you give some visible tactile evidence that your, your opponent in this game, he's not doing what he said he would do, is, okay, I'm accepting this, and I agree, that's your well, and my men should not have taken it. And he says, okay, I'll accept it. So Abraham called to this place Beersheba which is a Hebrew word, which means a well of oaths, a well of seven. 
It is a visible, tangible, tactile way of sealing this covenant arrangement. The arrangement, it's been tested, now it's sealed. It's a major test of this agreement. And in, in the ancient Near Eastern way of doing things, this is settled. Abimelech accepts it. Abimelech agrees to it. And Abraham says, okay, you're acknowledging that that's my will because you accepted these seven year lands. Yes, I do. And we're agreeing to this. Yes, okay, I'm going to call this place Beersheba. And that becomes the homeland of Abraham. Now, what I want to do is tomorrow morning, we're going to get a plane and we're going to go to Israel and we're going to travel down to the Negev and we're going to go to Beersheba. And I'm going to take you to the gatehouse of Beersheba. And right at the gatehouse, there is a well. And right next to that well is a tamarisk tree that Abraham planted 4,000 years ago. And I'm telling you, the way that plant looked, that tree, it looks like it's that old. I mean, it's all not true. But there, there is a fair amount of evidence that that well that is there, that I can take you to, that is the well that's being discussed here. Because we absolutely know where Bersheba is and all that is absolutely no doubt about it. And that's why in verse 33, and Abraham planted the Tamar's tree in Bersheba and called there the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, El-Olam, O-L-A-M, El-Olam, God, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned among the day, many days in the land of the Philistines, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So, you have this tremendous, um, tremendous example of two things going on. One, how Abraham, in his, the way he lived his life, the way he manifested his faithfulness to God, a pagan ruler like Abimelech notices that. And he says, your God is with you. And I, therefore, I want to make an agreement with you. I want you to promise something. And all this is wrapping around the, the, the controversy of the well and so on. But it's, it's sealed. It's agreed. This is Abraham. And, and Abimelech, Abimelech hanging over all of that is God is with this man. And so the symbol of that is this tamarisk tree, which is uh, uh, kind of a always, whenever a tree, many times, there, you know, God is really into symbols and symbolism. And, but that tamarisk tree, which is a really robust, hardy tree, can deal, when you're in a semi-arid climate, uh, trees have to be like that, or they're not going to survive. So that is it's an example of the lasting covenant provision of God. So every time you look at Tamar's tree, you think of the covenant arrangement between Abraham and Abimelech. That's what it was supposed to symbolize. So again, it's just it's kind of a, a tremendous closing out of despite all the foibles and times when Abraham doubts God and doesn't quite trust God, God's still blessing him. God's still being faithful. And you just stamp over all this as you always do with everybody. But God's grace. God's grace. All right? <laughs> All right. I have one question for you. I did, uh, one, yeah, please. I, I just didn't hear it. What did you say the translation for Beersheba is? Um, well of Oath, O-A-T-H, Well of Oath. Thank you. Or Well of Seven. 
they're interchangeable, so to speak. Thank you. Okay, you bet. And Glenn, even though you're in Texas, you're going to go in the plane with us tomorrow to Israel, aren't you? Love it. Okay, good. I just want to make sure you're going to be along. Mm -hmm. Oh, I would love to take you guys there. Oh, my goodness. That would be really wonderful. Now, it's getting, we're, we don't have too much more time, but I want to start Chapter 22, and we'll finish it next week. But this, this passage is even unbelievers know of this. They've heard about it because it is one of those truly extraordinary tests of faith. God is going to ask Abraham, indeed, I shouldn't make it, he's going to command Abraham to do something, which is counterintuitive, which contradicts everything we know about God, and seems to be in conformity with pagans. Child sacrifice. And you step back and you say, wait a minute, time out. This is a test of Abraham's faith. This is a test. Do you really believe this is Abraham? Do you, Abraham, do you really believe that this is the covenant son? Do you really believe that God is going to fulfill his promises, land, seed, and blessing to you through this son? And through his sons, and his sons, etc. said, do you really believe that? Yes, I do. And Abraham is going to, I want to go, we're going to go through this narrative in great detail, but I'm going to give you the big picture. Abraham will meticulously obey God here. There's no doubt. There's no questioning. He even gets up early in the morning to start the journey. I don't know about you guys, but I have slept in that day. I mean, he, in early in the morning, he's getting up to obey God and head north for three days. And secondly, we'll see this at the end of the hour next week. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11, that great you know, hall of fame of faith people and so on, it tells us of Abraham. He believed that God would bring his son back from the dead. Another way of saying that is, if he went through with what God wanted him to do, which he was willing to do, he believed that when he took Isaac, sacrificed him, that God would bring him back to life. In other words, resurrect him, bring him back to life and give him back to him. Now, men, by the time you're in Genesis 22, Abraham's faith is deepened. There's no questioning. There's no doubt. And his faith is so certain Remember, they'd waited 25 years for this. He'd seen what God had done. He, he believed even if I sacrifice my son, God will give my son back. That's faith. And so as we study this, I want to give you the really big picture about this, but it reminds you and me, of even in our lives today, trusting God, believing God's promises is what gets us through tough times. And it, as we're you know, nearing the end of life, even, there's that hope of what happens when we go to be with the Lord. And all that's waiting us on, on the other side, so to speak. And so this is all wrapped around faith, the important lesson of faith, and the testing of faith. 
And Abraham certainly passed that test. All right, let's get started with it, and we'll really complete it next week. Verse 1, chapter 22 is where we are. After these things, and okay, that's connecting with what we've just been studying. Abraham, Abraham has circumcised Isaac. Uh, Isaac has been weaned. God's taken care of Ishmael. And all those things we say. Now, after these things, so the, the difficulty is how old is Isaac? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, but we're assuming by the way the language is usually in the chapter that Isaac is probably a young teenager. He's not an infant. He's a young teenager. So after these things, God tested Abraham, an extremely important term. And I read from the ESV translation, they have translated that correctly. This is a test. A test of what? Of Abraham's faith. Do you believe what God has promised you? Your son's been born. He's now in his early teen years about the test. Abraham, he responds, here I am. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. You say, wait, wait a minute. Isaac's not his only son. Yes, he is in terms of the covenant. The covenant son. The son I promised you 20 out. He's born when he's 25, so this is probably 37 years ago or something like that, if, if Isaac's 12, 13, something like that. Make your son your only son whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. Now, it, it, it's really hard to uh, it's really hard to see it on this map because the things are so small. But if you if you can um, find Beersheba, <laughs> which is right about it's about in the center of this map. Moriah is north three days, a three day trip, three day travel, and Moriah is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, Jerusalem as a city, in the way you think of Jerusalem, doesn't exist yet. It's a small little thing run by a bunch of Canaanites. But Moriah, Moriah is in the center of Jerusalem. Uh, I'm going to, I really want to talk about this next week. I'm going to show you some things next week. But you have, to, if you go where Temple Mount is today, David and Solomon cut off the top of that, made it flat. You go where Temple Mount is today. You're facing north. Here's Temple Mount. You go north. You just go over the hill. Right there's Moriah. So you have Temple Mount and Mount Moriah, almost the same thing. It's almost exactly the same thing. And this is really instructive because God, why of all the places God could say, Abraham, take your son to, take your son south. Take your son down to Mount Horeb, where I'm going to give the law to Moses. Well, that would have made a lot of sense. Or take take your son, take your son and and go go over to a little bit farther to the east. Or go, I mean, there's so why did he choose Moriah? Because two thousand years later, another father and another son 
are going to walk up, same, walk up the same mountain. That son will be the sacrifice for all humanity. So Genesis 22 intersects with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They occur on the same mountain. So it is not just some random choice by God. This is strategic. This mountain will be the mountain 2,000 years later where I will sacrifice my son. Now, I'm, that isn't in text. But when you read the New Testament text, that's exactly why this is important. And the intersection of Genesis 22 with the crucifixion of Jesus is central to the unity of the two testaments, all unified around the person of Jesus. I'm continuing in the middle of verse 2 now. To the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Verse 3. So Abraham questioned God, asking why. Do you ask me to do something only the pagans do? Now, are you following? Did you read what I, that's not in the Bible. Abraham rose early in the morning. He's got a three-day journey ahead of himself with his boy. Like I said somewhat humorously, I'd have slept in that day. I'd have said, Lord, I got a real bad headache. I've got COVID. I can't go. But that's not what it is. Unquestioning obedience to God. The doubt, the conniving, the misrepresentation he did in Pharaoh with the Bimelech about Sarah taking all that stuff. Not a decision anymore. It's not a part of Abraham anymore. He has seen God keep his word. So unquestioning obedience. It's incredible, man. I just every time I study this and read this, I'm just astonished at Abraham. <laughs> Here is a man, his faith has matured, his faith has deepened. He trusts God. Saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, with presumably servants, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham, meaning when they began, it's a three day, three days journey north. And so the third day, Abraham lifted, lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, this is really important because the geography of this, Beersheba is very low, about oh, 150 feet above sea level. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. So as he's walking in the direction of the north, he's just walking up like this. And as you get to, you're, he's coming in from the south. Moriah is, Moriah is very high. So he sees that. Now, I'm not sure where he was yet, but he sees, sees Moriah. So he, that's where God wants me to go. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, the language there in Hebrew is really young man. We would say today, a teenager. It isn't boy as an infant. The Hebrew word there is this is a teenage kid. That's the Hebrew language there. You will go over there and worship 
and come again to you. I'm going to read that again. He says to his two young men, the servants who were with him, stay here with the donkey. I and my teenage son, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, that's the point in Hebrew. My teenage son will go over there and worship and come back to you again. Who is going to come back to you again? My son and I. That's why Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19 says, Abraham believed that God would give his son back to him. That's faith. Why did he believe that? Because God had told him for 25 years before, Abraham, before Isaac was born, this is the covenant son. All the blessings I promise you are going to filter through this son and his son, etc. So I believe God. 25 years I waited for this. I saw what God done. It's now 12, 13 years later. Okay, if God wants me to do this, but I know God's going to keep his promise. And I'm telling you, that is real faith. Now, if you want to know what happens, you got to come back next week. And we'll start with verse 6 next week. I hope you get as excited about that as I do. This is just a tremendous example of faith. It, it really is. All right, guys online, are you with me? We're here. Yep. All sure. right. Yep. Everybody else, I think, here in the room is with me. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to, i got to get out of here. So uh, let's, let's pray here. Father, thank you for Abraham. The Bible says over and over again, he's a paradigm of faith. He is an example of faith. Paul makes much of that in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians 3 and 4. And here we see, in this chapter particularly, we see this tremendous man of faith. No doubt, no questioning. He immediately obeys, even gets early in the morning, gets up early in the morning to begin the trip. Oh, Lord, that's an amazing example of faith. But when we look back, all he went through, the way in which you tested him and developed him and matured him and grew him. Uh, he is a man of tremendous faith. So, Lord, we want to be men of faith. Help us to be men who trust you, men who know ultimately from the vantage point of eternity that you always have our best interest at heart. You permit and allow things to happen in our lives that we often don't understand. But, Lord, we trust you. We know that ultimately... You will keep all the promises that you've made to us. But we believe you. We trust you. We want to walk in confident faith with you. So as we finish this class today, just remind us of how important that passage of Scripture is. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. We're men of faith. We thank you for all you've done for us through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.